Well, who were these Hebrews? Who was the audience to which this letter was written? Well, they were brothers and sisters, probably living in Jerusalem and in Israel, and they'd made that change, hadn't they? From looking for a Messiah who was going to deliver Israel, which of course the Messiah will do, but a Messiah who was going to suffer first of all. It behoved Christ to suffer and then to rise from the dead on the third day. And the idea of a suffering Messiah to the Jewish nation was, as the Apostle Paul said, a stumbling block. So these Hebrews had accepted the Lord Jesus. And as a result of this, were now fellowshipping the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ. They were hated by their own nation. This was the first problem that the Hebrew brothers and sisters were facing. And so this epistle was written to them because it appears from several words in the epistle that they were becoming weary. Just look, we've read this sort of thing in our 12th chapter. Verse 3, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Or look at verse 12, wherefore lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Things were slipping with these Hebrew brothers and sisters. If you come to chapter 10 of Hebrews and look in particular at verse 32, the apostle reminds them of when they had accepted the gospel message of the suffering Messiah. Chapter 10, verse 32, but call to remembrance the former days in which after ye were illuminated, ye endured a great fight of afflictions. Notice that word endured because that's going to crop up several times uh, in this first address. They had become, verse 33, a gazing stock both by reproaches and afflictions. So these Hebrew brothers and sisters were not having an easy time of it. They'd accepted the Messiah and they had become hated by their own neighbours. And whether they were thinking that perhaps it was going to be just easier to slip back and go back to temple worship, go back to life under the law of Moses because that's what they were used to, the law of Moses that totally dominated their lives from cradle to grave, the Hebrews were in danger of believing that the law of Moses, full stop, was God's means of salvation. They were in danger of holding that the temple and the priesthood and the offerings were God's method of salvation. Hadn't God given the law to Moses? But it's worth pointing out, isn't it, 
that Almighty God did not give the law to save people, but to indicate that they needed a savior. The law was a schoolmaster to point them to the savior. The law itself was never going to save them. So that's, I suppose, reason number one why the epistle was written. And reason number two could be that they were forgetting the warning of the Lord Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus had appealed to Jerusalem. He cried over the city, if you remember, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and ye would not. Just keep a marker in Hebrews uh, 12 and come back with me to Matthew chapter 24. Because this is the start of the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? Matthew chapter 24, also found in the uh, Mark's record and Luke's gospel, but we'll look at Matthew in particular. And in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1, we read what initially might appear to be a, an insignificant sort of detail. Matthew records that Jesus went out and departed from the temple. It isn't insignificant, isn't it? It's such a memorable occasion now because it's the last time that the Lord Jesus left the temple. It is so significant. He had come unto his own and his own had not received him. Though he had done so many miracles, yet they did not believe. And so he says to them, your house, not my father's house, your house is left unto you desolate. And the Lord Jesus leaving the temple is an echo, isn't it, of the glory of the Lord leaving the temple in the prophecy of Ezekiel, when the glory of the Lord departed the temple, departed the city of Jerusalem, went to the top of the Mount of Olives significantly, and then disappeared. And here now, the glory of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, was departing the temple. You will not see me henceforth until you shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, last verse of chapter 23. And then the Lord Jesus shocked the disciples, didn't he? There's no other word for it. When they had asked him to admire the beautiful temple, and the Lord Jesus said, not one stone was going to be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. There will be signs in the world, nation against nation, famines, pestilences and earthquakes. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And the disciples, he said, would be severely tested. They would be betrayed by family members, by their own children, by their own parents, a Jewish brother and sister. A Hebrew had become now a marked man with a double fault 
in the eyes of his fellows. He'd accepted a crucified but resurrected Messiah and he refused to share in the patriotic movements for securing the freedom of his people. He would not join in the national fervor to defend Jerusalem. Everybody could see the Romans were coming. They knew precisely what was going to happen. And so the epistle to the Hebrews urges the Hebrews to get out of the city of Jerusalem. Here we have no continuing city, said the writer in Hebrews 13 and verse 14. It was an appeal to the Hebrews to remain faithful at this last moment of severe and painful testing. Now, I'd like to suggest that there is a connection between Matthew 24 and Hebrews 12. And this is where you need to have both passages open at the same time. So if you remember, I should keep a marker in Hebrews 12 and also Matthew 24, because I'm going to suggest that there are around about seven words that link Hebrews 12, the last part of it, and the words of the Lord Jesus in Matthew 24. So have Matthew 24 ready and verse 29 and concentrate on, please, the, the words heaven and earth and shaken, the clouds of heaven, the angels, the trumpet and the words that would not pass away. So verse 29 of Matthew 24. Immediately after the tribulation of these those days shall the sun be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars shall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens shall be shaken and then shall appear the sign of the son of man in heaven and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn and they shall see the son of man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Verse 31, and he shall send his angels with the great sound of a trumpet, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Verse 35, heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So we've got these distinctive words, heaven and earth, shaken, clouds, angels, trumpets, and the voice of words. Well, come to Hebrews 12 and see how the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, incorporates these words from the Mount Olivet prophecy, or to be more accurate, from the prophecy of Haggai, which we'll look at in the second talk in some small detail but Hebrews 12 now and verse 25 and see how these words are woven in as a warning to the Hebrews verse 25 of Hebrews 12 our chapter see that ye refuse not him that speaketh for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth how much more shall we not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then 
shook the earth. But now he hath promised, saying yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Verse 27, and this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things which are shaken, as of things that are made, that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Verse 28, wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There on this cusp of the time of AD 70, how many years they'd got left, I'm not certain, when the epistle was written, it's got to have been say in the 60s, even the late 60s, but they're on the threshold of heaven and earth being shaken. We're talking figuratively, aren't we? The Jewish heavens and earth were going to be shaken when Jerusalem was taken and the temple was destroyed. It was the end of the Jewish commonwealth life for the Jew was then going to be turned upside down. Heaven and earth was going to be shaken. But in Hebrews 12, we've got the other words, haven't we? We've got clouds, clouds of witnesses. We've got the angels that we're going to be thinking about. And we've got the voice of the trumpet that was sounding loud at Sinai that will also figure in our remarks. And the words that were heard, not only at Sinai, but also the words that come to us from heaven. My words shall not pass away, even though heaven and earth shall pass away. But there's one more connection, and we don't need to turn back to Matthew to remember this, but verse 13 of Matthew 24 says, But he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. And this is the key word, one of them, in uh, Hebrews 12. Verse 1. Wherefore, seeing we also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance. It's patience in the authorised, but it's the word endure, as Brother Chris read it to us. We've got to be patient. We've got to endure unto the end. Verse 2 looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured. Verse 3, for consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And then verse 7, if ye endure chastening. So there's a correlation here, isn't there, between the Mount Olivet prophecy and Hebrews 12, as though the writer, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is saying, remember what the Lord Jesus said? It's about to happen. So don't give in at the last moment. Don't become weary. Don't let things slip. Don't neglect your discipleship. Well, 
I don't need to remind you, do I, of uh, what the epistle to the Hebrews is all about. It's about the superiority, isn't it, of the Lord Jesus. He's greater, greater than the prophets. God spoke in times past by the prophets, but now is speaking to us by his son. Chapter 1, verse 1. He's greater than the angels in chapter 1 and chapter 2. He's greater than Moses in chapter 3. He's greater than Joshua and Aaron in chapters 4 to 6. He's greater than the Levitical priesthood and the covenant, the old covenant, chapters 7 and 8. And in chapters 9 and 10, he's greater than the tabernacle, temple and sacrifices. The Lord Jesus now is the culmination of God's plan and purpose of salvation. It is through the Lord Jesus that God's grace is seen. It had been the grace of the Almighty up until then in all these different other methods of his revelation. God's grace was seen in the words of the prophets and the angels and in Moses, etc. But it would be seen in its fullness in the giving of the Lord Jesus. And then in Hebrews 11, we have this marvellous catalogue of faithful people, faith in action. But lest we think that that's the end of all the examples of men and women of faith, he saves the best example to the last. And we come to chapter 12, because here's the last and the best example of faith in action. And we're all exhorted to run the race of faith looking unto the Lord Jesus. He is the sublime example, the supreme example of faith in his heavenly father. He's the author and he's the finisher of faith. But then did you notice, as like, it's like a bookend of this, uh, this section, uh, chapter 12, verse 1 to 17. Did you notice who the other example that the apostle reminds the Hebrews of? He's reminded them of the best example, the Lord Jesus. And then in verse, 17, verse 16, he reminds them of about the worst example, that of Esau. It's chalk and cheese, isn't it? There's a complete difference between the endurance of the Lord Jesus under trial and that of Esau. Esau who was only concerned with short-term gain, immediate gratification. He was short-sighted. He was only interested in the here and now. He was hungry and he wanted something to eat. Blow the birthright. He despised it. He despised the promises. Says that in Genesis, doesn't it? After he'd eaten that one meal, he sold everything. He despised it and he went out. But you consider the Lord Jesus. Forty days in the wilderness, hungry. 
That's endurance for you, isn't it? I couldn't rise to that, could you? I know when I'm hungry, and what times we're having something to eat, you know. Uh, but the Lord Jesus endured in the wilderness when he was by himself, and when he endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, Esau only lasted a few hours. What were the promises worth? A meal, that's all. And isn't that the same today where the spirit of the ages, let's eat and drink and be merry. When can we get back in the pub? Let's eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. But this is where endurance comes in now, isn't it? As the example of the Lord Jesus is before us. And it's a race that is set before us. We're now the competitors, the participants. All the others that have gone before, it's as though they're spectators in the stadium of the Olympic Games. We can easily imagine it, can't we? There's a real hoo-ha going on at the moment, isn't there? Whether, they, whether Japan should hold the Olympics. And one of the options is there'll be nobody in the stadium to watch the athletes, like there's been nobody in the football stadium to uh, urge on the, the footballers. And they've had to play, haven't they? Crowd noises in order to encourage the, the footballers to lift their game. Well, they don't get paid very much, do they? So anyway, we have encouragement from the spectators, the men and women of faith who are in, as it were, described as these clouds of witnesses. It's such a beautiful picture, clouds, water that has, you know, been extracted, absorbed from the, from the oceans by the sun of righteousness. And uh, we're, as it were, these clouds and the faithful were the clouds. And the Lord Jesus is going to come back in clouds. That's Matthew 24, isn't it? So they're there encouraging us. And they are there when we do our daily readings. We start the year. And as we start the, the race, as it were, we run past Abel. And Abel's an, a, an example to us uh, of his faithfulness. And we move around the stadium and we meet Enoch. He's there in the crowds, isn't he? He walked with God in days that were wicked before the, before the flood. A little further along, there's Noah, and he's a faithful man, isn't he? He's a, uh, somebody who can encourage us because only eight were saved in the end. His preaching fell on deaf ears. And then a bit further round, wow, there's Abraham, the father of the faithful. This is one reason why we do the daily readings, isn't it? Year by year, we're racing round the stadium and we're meeting these faithful brothers and sisters. The proverb says that he that walketh with wise men shall be wise. Well, we're urged here not to walk, but to run. And we're running with wise men, as it were, encouraging us on by their lives of faithful obedience. And now this next little point is a bit more sort of near to heart because we're encouraged in verse one to lay aside every weight. 
And uh, I suppose during lockdown, that's been a big problem for many of us uh, with the pounds and ounces and even stones that we've perhaps put on. If we're going in for a race, you know as well as I do that we've got to shed these extra pounds, stones, etc., because they'll be a handicap. You remember the words of the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians? He said, All things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. These things, these extra weights that we might accumulate in our discipleship, well, they may not be unlawful, but are they any advantage in our discipleship? Or are they an encumbrance, the extra weight that we're having to carry? And maybe lockdown has perhaps helped us to see what is necessary and what we actually need and don't need in our discipleship. In a horse race, they, are, they, they put weights, don't they, into the saddle of some of the horses extra weights to handicap them so that each horse has an equal chance of winning. In discipleship we don't want any extra weight do we? So the apostle urges us to lay aside those things that are going to get in the way of our discipleship. And in the first verse as well he gets a little bit more serious doesn't he when he says and the sin that doth so easily beset us. These extra weights might not be sins, but are they any advantage to our discipleship? But there is the danger, he says, of the sin which doth so easily beset us. And it could be that you might have in your margin, it's in the revised version margin, it talks about something that is admired of many when that phrase is used the sin that doth so easily beset us and it reminded me of the way that in the gospel of john there were many jews says john that would have been disciples of the lord jesus but they were afraid of declaring their discipleship lest they be put out of the synagogue for they loved the praise of men the admiration of men. Perhaps this was a sin that doth so easily beset the Hebrews. It would have been so much easier to have just gone along with their neighbours. And yet the apostle was wanting them to stand out and endure as the Lord Jesus had done. But you know what? I think the sin that doth so easily beset us in the letter to the Hebrews is the sin of unbelief. And it is the sin of a lack of faith and trust in Almighty God. Think of the examples in chapters three and four, where the writer refers back to the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel, how that they hardened their hearts. They had an evil heart of unbelief. 
they disbelieved God. And when it came to the crunch, when the spies returned, they said, we're not able. We're not able to get into the promised land. Let's elect a captain to go back into Egypt. And this was the danger of the Hebrews. We want to go back to the temple. We want to go back into Jerusalem. We want to just have an easy life. And isn't that a lesson for us, my dear brothers and sisters? Wouldn't it be easier? Well, no, says the apostle. It's blatant disobedience to Almighty God to not trust that he can deliver us. He is able to save us. And the Lord Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost, a phrase from Hebrews as well. Just as Caleb and Joshua encouraged the people, we might not be able, but God is able to save us. Just have faith and trust. But maybe this was the sin that doth so easily beset the Hebrew brothers and sisters and us if we're not careful. And he then says in verse one that we've got to run with patience and endurance. And we looked at the other verses already, haven't we, where that word is used. It's not a hundred meter sprint. It's not just being baptized one minute and then getting into the kingdom the next. Though, if that's what the Lord wills, then that is what he wills. But for us, the majority of us, it's not a hundred meter sprint, is it? It's a marathon. And marathons are not easy. And I speak from having no experience of ever running one. But, well, we all know, don't we? It's not easy. Now, come back with me, please, to the, put your marker back in Hebrews 12. Come back with me to the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. I just wonder if the apostle had this passage in mind under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Numbers 21, where we have a, a, a double echo from Hebrews 12. First of all, of a people that did not have endurance. And then something else that links the chapters and you're probably ahead of me. But let's save it up for a moment. Let's go in at Numbers 21 and verse 1. And when King Arab the Canaanite, which dwelt in the south, heard tell that Israel came by the way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites, and they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and he called the name of the place Homer. Let's just remind ourselves, this is the new generation. This is the 40th year. This is the last year of the wilderness journey. I haven't time to prove that to you, but chapter 20, when Miriam dies in verse 1, and when Aaron dies in verse 23 of chapter 20, it's the last year. And chapter 21, this is the young generation, the generation that will go in 
to the promised land. And they'd been attacked by King Arad. And see how faithful this younger generation were initially. Verse 2, if thou wilt indeed deliver this people into my hand, I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And that's a lovely example. It was a foretaste of what God, what God was going to do. He would deliver them into the promised land. He was going to give them an encouragement to trust him now. And they did. But then verse 4. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged by the way. Why was that? Why had they lost their enthusiasm? Why were they now weary? Why were their hands hanging down? And why were their knees feeble and weak? Well, look at the geographical details, and it's patently obvious. They were going by the way of the Red Sea. They were going to compass the land of Eden. Now, imagine the map. They'd been up in sort of Kadesh Barnea. They'd wandered 40 years in the wilderness. And now this younger generation up in that area where King Arad lived had seen the Lord's deliverance on their behalf. And what's happening now? What's, what's going wrong? What's Moses think he's doing? They're going in the wrong direction. They're going via the Red Sea. They're going to compass the land of Edom. It's, it's the wrong way. They're going in the wrong direction. What's the cloud doing? Taking them in this wrong direction. And so the people were much, much discouraged. In the margin, grieved, or the Hebrew is the word shortened. And again, if you've got a revised margin, it'll say they became impatient. Hebrews urges us to run with patience and endurance, and these people were the exact opposite, like the Hebrews were in danger of doing. Verse 5. And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have he brought up us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Oh, doesn't that sound familiar? It's what the, the father and mother used to say. For there's no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. That's exactly what their parents had said. And verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Fiery. And I'll remind you that the expression in Hebrews 12 is that our God is a consuming fire. He sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people and much people of Israel died. Therefore, verse 7, the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned. And we've spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. 
verse 8, And the Lord said unto Moses, Make thee a fiery serpent, and set it upon a pole, and it shall come to pass that every one that is bitten, when he looketh upon it, shall live. What did the apostle to the Hebrews say? Look unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. This is the Old Testament equivalent. For we know that as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so too, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. When they looked, they lived. When they looked in faith, they lived. So back in Hebrews 12, this is the exhortation, maybe taken directly from Numbers, where the apostle urges us to look unto Jesus, to turn away from looking at everything else, to stop being like Peter, who turned away his attention from the Lord Jesus and nearly drowned as a result. But the Lord rescued him in the nick of time. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher, the one who goes before and the one who will bring up the reward. He's the starter and he's the finisher. But the problem is they were going through difficulties, weren't they? The chastening of the Lord, the training that every disciple has to go through, the training that children have to go through. You leave your children untrained uh, and you'll live to regret it. And grandchildren as well. And ourselves, if we're not trained in our discipleship, what will our characters turn out like? If we're not learning from God's word, what will our characters be like? They'll be dominated by the flesh, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. We've got to be trained and disciplined in these things. And it isn't a, a nice experience, is it? It isn't an easy experience. Training for a race isn't an easy experience. But that passage, do not despise the chastening of the Lord for whom the Lord loves, he chasteneth, that's verse six, is taken again straight out of the Old Testament where the Almighty in Deuteronomy said he was like a father to Israel to train them and he humbled them that he might do them good at their latter end that they might learn not to just live by bread only but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the father this is the training that we all have to to go through correct thy son and he will give thee rest yea he shall give delight unto thy soul don't train your children and don't be upset when they turn out the way they do training is vital for the athlete to be successful training is essential the athlete must trust his trainer 
and places absolute confidence in his methods. So verse 10 of Hebrews 12, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. But no matter how hard we try looking unto Jesus, no matter how we try to follow his steps, we're not going to be successful, are we? And so I take you to verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. And we're coming to the last point now, because the grace of God will make all the difference. Yes, we've got to race. Yes, we've got to run. Yes, there are going to be trials and tribulations. Without tribulation, we will not gain the kingdom. There will be pressures in life. But never forget the grace of Almighty God. The grace of God is a lovely theme throughout the scriptures, perhaps particularly in the New Testament, for we're reminded that it's by grace that we are saved through faith, and that not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the grace of God will get us there. The author and the finisher, the Lord Jesus, will get us there if we believe and seek to live faithfully as best we're able as we wait for the coming of the Lord Jesus. Let's go back to chapter 10, where this little passage is explained in a little bit more detail. Hebrews 10, where there is the severe warning in verse 26, for if we sin willfully after that we have received the knowledge of the truth, there remaineth no more sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation. I emphasize the word fiery, which ties in with numbers and the end of chapter 12 of Hebrews. Verse 28, he that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sorer punishment suppose ye, shall he be thought worthy who hath trodden underfoot the Son of God, and hath counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing, and hath done despite unto the Spirit of grace? God has done everything that he can. He gave his only begotten Son. The Lord Jesus has done all he can. He's the author and he's the finisher. And God's grace is sufficient. It's more than sufficient to get us into the kingdom so that we now should be lifting up our hands and our feeble knees, as it were, and running this race as best we're able, keeping our eyes on the one who has gone before. 
finish with some lovely words from the um, 35th verse of chapter 10. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, not self-confidence, not confidence in ourselves, but our confidence in Almighty God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward, for ye have need of patience, endurance. After ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For our God is a consuming fire. It's a reminder to us, isn't it, that although we rejoice in the grace and the mercy of Almighty God, that he's merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquities and transgression and sin, he will by no means clear the guilty. He is a God of grace, mercy and love, but we must never forget that he is also a consuming fire. Now, this section from 18 to 29 compares two mountains, doesn't it? Mount Sinai, the place where God gave the commandments, and Mount Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life forevermore. And there's a contrast and a comparison, isn't there, in our minds, where God spoke at Sinai in the giving of the law, and he is now speaking today in these words of grace and truth, mercy and love for us, if we would but listen. And that's the balance of this chapter, isn't it? This section that they heard the voice of the of Almighty God. They heard the voice of the angel bearing God's name. And they heard the sound of the trumpet. And they saw the spectacle, the fearful spectacle of the giving of the law. And they were frightened. Israel was so frightened that they pleaded with Moses that he speak to God on their behalf and he speak to them on God's behalf as a mediator, as it were. But sadly, by, the, by their subsequent behaviour, they didn't really want to listen to God anyway, did they? And the writer now says, well, we mustn't make that same mistake, verse 25. Verse 25, see that you refuse not him that speaketh, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on, for if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him 
that speaketh from heaven. He's still speaking today. But Sinai definitely was a place of terror and fear, wasn't it? Verse 18, for ye are not come unto the mount that might be touched and that burned with fire, nor with blackness and darkness and tempest. And whilst Sinai could be touched, they hadn't got to touch it, because if they did, that meant their certain death. As it's recorded in another place, the law was a ministration of death. The law in itself was powerless to give life. The law in itself was powerless to bring men and women near to God. And rather than keeping them at arm's length because of the holiness and the righteousness of Almighty God, there is now this lovely contrast, isn't there? That through the Lord Jesus, we can come near. Chapter 4 and verse 16. You'll know these lovely words. Chapter 4 and verse 16. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Or turn to chapter 7, chapter 7 and verse 25. Wherefore he is able also to save them to the uttermost, who that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. There's a contrast, isn't there, between Sinai and Mount Zion, which is now what we're going to develop. In what comes right in the middle of this section, these eight powerful promises, these eight encouraging expressions, they're an exhortation for us to think about, to meditate on, and to encourage ourselves in our discipleship today. Each of these phrases is an exhortation in itself, and we won't do justice by going quickly through all of them because of time, but they're worthy of extra thought and study and meditation. So let's come to verse 22 and 23 and 4. And as we say, there are eight powerful promises. And if you've got a pencil, it might be worth just circling the word and, because the word and is the giveaway of when an expression starts and finishes. So, verse 22, but ye are come unto, number one, Mount Zion, and, number two, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And, number three, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly, and, number four, church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. And, number five, to God, 
the judge of all. And number six, to the spirits of just men made perfect. And number seven, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. And number eight, last one, to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. So if you're going to look back through these verses in your own time, look out for the word and, because that's the separator, as it were, for these eight powerful promises and eight encouraging expressions. They're a delight, my dear brothers and sisters, and they re repay extra thought, study and meditation on our part. But they're all accessed by faith. And that while this world is transient, passing away and ephemeral, heaven and earth will pass away, said the Lord Jesus, but my words will not pass away. These eight phrases we're going to be looking at are eternal. They're certain and they're sure because their promise is made by Almighty God. So, number one, let's jump in. But ye are come unto Mount Zion. Now, this is coming unto Mount Zion in faith. It's not coming yet in reality, because we know that the message of the Hebrews is you've got to get out of the of Jerusalem. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. So this is Mount Zion that we come to by faith. It's not the Jerusalem of AD 70 to the Hebrews, which would be destroyed by the Roman armies. It's not the Jerusalem that will be trodden down of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. It's not the Jerusalem that is under the control of the nation of Israel today and disputed by the Palestinians that is the stumbling block of the nations. And it's the Jerusalem of the return of the Lord Jesus when his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. And there will be this mighty earthquake that will have repercussions throughout the whole of the planet, I believe, when the cities of the nations fall. And you think of the tectonic plates and the way that they're all interconnected. And just think what will happen when his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives and that earthquake is triggered off. This is when it's going to be the Zion of Almighty God and the Lord Jesus when his feet shall stand in that day. We know that God has chosen Zion. He's told us, hasn't he, that my name might be there. And think of the ending of the prophecy of Ezekiel, the last verse of Ezekiel's prophecy. How does it end? It says the name of the city from that day shall be the Lord is there. It's beautiful for situation. It's the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. And it's where God has said, I will set my king. 
upon my holy hill of Zion. When the heathen rage and the kings of the earth imagine vain things, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, God will have the last word. He will have the last laugh. I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. This is the first thing that the apostle here is promising us in these eight powerful promises that we will go to Jerusalem. Keep your marker in Hebrews 12 and come back to Psalm 87. Psalm 87. And here's a, a, another connection with Hebrews 12. We saw one in the uh, Mount Olivet prophecy, haven't we? But here's another connection that is uh, given to us by the Spirit, bringing these things together. Psalm 87, a psalm or song for the sons of Korah. Korah's foundation, well, it, it wasn't there, was it? The earth opened and swallowed him up. He'd no foundation for standing up against the Lord. But the sons of Korah did not die. First one, his foundation, God's foundation, is in the holy mountains. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion more than all the dwellings of Jacob. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. Selah, stop, pause, meditate, consider. The city here that is being talked about, it's not New York, it's not Berlin, London, it, it's Zion, isn't it? And this is going to be the city of the great king. And then verse four to seven has echoes in Hebrews 12. I will make mention of Rahab, now, that's not the Rahab in the days of Joshua. That's another name for Egypt. I will make mention of Egypt and Babylon. To them that know me. To know God is eternal life. And people from these cities, from these countries, from Gentile lands, are going to be involved in this new Zion. Whether they come from Egypt or Babylon, it's because they know Almighty God. Carry the verse on, verse four, Philistia. That's a surprise, isn't it? And Tyre with Ethiopia. This man was born there. Now, that phrase, this man was born there, in the Septuagint, is absolutely delightful. It's so good that the Apostle Paul, under the Spirit, used it in Galatians 4, when he said that Jerusalem, which is above, is free. And here's the phrase, which is the mother of us all. So the end of verse 4, this man was born there. In the Septuagint and in Galatians 4.26, Jerusalem is the mother of us all. In other words, salvation is of the Jews, as the Lord Jesus said to the woman of Samaria. It is 
the hope of Israel that we're talking about here. This is salvation in none other name other than the name of the Lord Jesus, who is going to be the king of the Jews. Verse 5, and, and of Zion it shall be said, this and that man was born in her, and the highest himself shall establish her. Verse 6, here's another echo of Hebrews 12 that we'll see. The Lord shall count when he writeth up the people that this man was born there, Selah. Pause, stop and consider. So our hope is centred in Zion's hope. And this first one of these eight powerful promises is talking about the literal city of Jerusalem. When the Lord Jesus returns, glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God. Come back to Hebrews 12. And let's now move to number two, where we've got Jew and Gentiles coming to Jerusalem. And we pray that we might be amongst, we're the Gentiles, aren't we, from the isles of far off. We who are far off have been brought nigh, so that Zion is the mother of us all. And it's where we will go with the Lord Jesus. So number two says, and unto the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. And so here now, in this second promise, we're, as it were, bringing together the spiritual Jerusalem. It's still literal, but it's not bricks and mortar, for it's the household of Almighty God. It's the seed of Abraham. It's the seed of David. It's the household of God. It's built upon the prophets and the apostles. The Lord Jesus is the chief cornerstone. We're all built together, a building fitly framed together. The, the stones are being, are being chipped away off site at the moment, as they were in the days of Solomon's temple. It's the training of the first talk, it's the tribulation, it's getting rid of the flesh of the rough edges, it's the preparation that is necessary for the stone to fit exactly into place in that day when the Lord builds again Zion. So this heavenly Jerusalem has already been spoken about. Come to Hebrews 11. And uh, verse 10, Hebrews 11 and verse 10. For he, Abraham, looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Well, he came from a city, didn't he? Ur of the Chaldees. It was a very civilized city, the height of uh, sophistication, as it were, in the then known world, according to the archaeologists. Where is it today? It's gone, hasn't it? Dust, sand. Just left for the archaeologist. But Abraham looked for a city which hath foundations. Or verse 16 of Hebrews 11. But now they desire a better country, that is, 
and heavenly country, not in heaven, but a heavenly country here on earth, because it's going to be the bride of the Lord Jesus, the city that descends from heaven. They desire a better country, that is, an heavenly, whereof God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he hath prepared for them a city. And for Abraham and for ourselves, it's a matter of faith at the moment. And all the faithful down the ages have desired to be citizens of this city, New Jerusalem. That's why we're not, as it were, wanting to join political parties or environmental movements of today. The world is trying to save itself, environmental problems. We've got to save the planet. Why don't we join together and help to save the planet? Well, that's the problem of the Hebrews. Why don't you join us to save Jerusalem against the Romans? And the Hebrews had to stand aside, as we have to stand aside, because we're not wanting to save this world, because the image of this world is going to come crashing down when the stone that is cut out of the mountains without hands smites the image on the feet and grinds it to powder. We're looking for a new world and we're citizens of a new capital city, Jerusalem. We have to go without the camp because here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come, Hebrews 13, 14. So first that which is natural, the city of Jerusalem, it's going to be literally there and rebuilt. The Lord is there. Then the spiritual inhabitants of Jerusalem, still literal in that sense, because we're here and now, but we want to be there in that great day and be citizens of Zion, counted as citizens. That's number two. These are powerful promises, aren't they, for us to meditate on. And look who's going to be there in the third one. And to an innumerable company of angels. Now, don't we like to meditate on this subject of angels because it's such a delightful subject and it's sort of just beyond our grasp, isn't it? Because we know full well that the angels of the Lord encamp round about them that fear him and delivers them. The angels, we can't see them, though some have entertained angels unawares, Hebrews 13. But we know they're here. When no, we know that they'll be in the, the rooms of power, the corridors of power, the G7 meeting. Uh, the angels will be there. And they'll all, the, the, the politicians will all stand up for the photograph and, you know, with the best smiles on, as it were. But we'll not see the, the angels in that photograph, but they'll be there, won't they? And they're here with us today. I just wonder what they're saying. Perhaps they're saying, why doesn't he take them to this verse? Why doesn't he explain that? <laughs> the angels are ministering spirits, aren't they? Come to chapter one of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter one. The Lord Jesus is superior now to the angels. He was made a little more of them for the suffering of death. But now he is 
superior to them. And uh, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for them who shall be heirs of salvation? Helping us, helping those who will be the heirs of salvation. And they're going to be there, an innumerable company of angels. And it's going to be the official transfer of responsibility from the angels under the control of the Lord Jesus at present, putting into practice the wishes and the commands of the Lord Jesus and of Almighty God. But the angels will transfer that duty to the faithful saints. Come to chapter 2 of Hebrews, chapter 2 and verse uh, 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. And we have to finish that off, don't we, in our minds now. He's not put the future world, the kingdom of God, in the subjection under the hand of the angels. He's put it, he's going to put it in the hands of the faithful brothers and sisters. There are parables that speak of this. You've been faithful in the little things, I will make thee ruler over many things. Enter thou into the joy of thy Lord. We, we don't know what we'll be doing, do we, in that sense, when the Lord Jesus returns and pray God we're found faithful. But it will be to help administer the commands of the Lord Jesus that the earth be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, when everything that hath breath will praise Almighty God. We are going to be there to help whatever the Lord Jesus wants us to do. Now, the angels were there at Sinai. We don't, we know that, don't we? The, the law was administered by the disposition of angels. Uh, a chief angel, the name-bearing angel, was there on God's behalf. When it says the Lord said, the Lord did this, it's the angel who did it. We know that, don't we? The angel that was in the church, in the wilderness with, with Moses, Acts 7. But that was such a solemn and frightening occasion, as we said at the beginning. But when the Lord Jesus returns, then it's going to be a different matter. After the judgment, and when the saints and the angels join together. And this is anticipated now, come back to Hebrews chapter 12, to the phrase that starts verse 23. Because if you noticed, as we highlighted the ands, verse 23, we've got one, Zion, two, the city of the living God, that was two, and then three, the innumerable company of angels. And then verse 23 goes straight into the phrase, to the general assembly. And. Now, this is an, an interesting point as to which version you're actually reading, whether to the general assembly refers to actually the 
innumerable company of angels tagged on at the end of that phrase, number three, or whether it's tagged on to the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven. We said we looked out for the ands, didn't we? And <laughs> it's there connected with the angels, really, isn't it? And if you're reading the NIV or the ESV, then they definitely link the phrase, the uh, general assembly. And it's sad, really, that the authorised version doesn't really do justice to this joyful occasion of the innumerable company of angels, because that phrase to the general assembly, and it's only used once in, in the New Testament, it means a festal gathering. It would be a gathering to celebrate the Olympic Games or other worthy occasions. The NIV says, verse 22, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. That's the NIV. And then the ESV says to an innumerable, innumerable angels in festal gathering. I like the, the NIV actually thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. Now, whether it's the angels that are in joyful assembly or the next phrase, the church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, that's number four. Well, it, it matters not because they're combined, aren't they, in their joyful assembly. When you think of the description in Revelation chapter five of the thousands upon thousands of angels and the different parts that are joined together expressed as the cherubim, the uh, living creatures and the four and twenty elders, but that is a representation of the saints, but they're joined together in this joyful assembly. When shall we join our cheerful songs with angels round the throne? Ten thousand thousand are their tongues, but all their joys are one. Worthy the Lamb that died, they cry, to be exalted thus. Worthy the Lamb, our lips reply, for he was slain for us. Jesus is worthy to receive honour and power divine, and blessings more than we can give, be Lord forever thine. Let all creation join in one to bless the sacred name of him that sits upon the throne and to adore the Lamb. That's hymn number 306. And the prospect is absolutely delightful, isn't it? Of being able to join together with immortal voices in praise of Almighty God and of the Lord Jesus, and sing that anthem then, worthy the Lamb. Well, the angels are good at singing, aren't they? <laughs> they sang at creation, the sons of God shouted for joy. Or they sang at the birth of the Lord Jesus. Or Bethlehem's plain, 
wouldn't you just love to have been there along with those shepherds to hear as it were the chorus of the angels glory to god in the highest and on earth peace goodwill toward men we're going to be there one day we're going to join together with the angels in this marvelous hallelujah chorus and you know that the angels also rejoice in heaven over one sinner that repenteth so what a day of rejoicing it will be these eight powerful promises they're ours if we embrace them in faith and trust they can be ours if only we just believe them and believe in the grace and mercy of almighty god and in our high priest the lord jesus so come on let's move on to number four uh, and that's in verse 23 the church of the firstborn which are written in heaven the ecclesia of the firstborn written in heaven keep your marker there and let's go to exodus chapter 4 where we read that israel were god's firstborn it says exodus chapter 4 and moses is here instructed to take this message to pharaoh exodus 4 and verse 22 exodus 4 verse 22 and thou shalt say unto pharaoh thus saith the lord israel is my son even my firstborn and i say unto thee let my son go that he may serve me and if thou refuse to let him go behold i will slay thy son even thy firstborn israel is my son even my firstborn the whole nation were god's firstborn in that sense and they were enrolled weren't they they were enrolled in the wilderness numbers chapter two and what happened to them they all died in the wilderness except joshua and caleb who wholly followed the lord and that's what we want to be like isn't it and this is us now the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven written among the living in jerusalem in the book of life and time doesn't permit us to look at any of the verses about the way that god has the book of life and the day book that records what we do and what we will have to answer for perhaps have to confront when we go to the judgment but there is grace with god and that takes us next to number five back to hebrews 12 and verse 23 to god the judge of all now that might not sound very encouraging might it not when you read that god is the judge and when we recognize that none of us is righteous no not one all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of god who can stand when he appeareth who can stand in judgment but i want you to come to romans romans chapter 8 
Because when we feel like this, Romans chapter 8 is the perfect antidote to this. To this. There are other passages in Romans that refer to Almighty God and his work through the Lord Jesus. We're justified freely by his grace. God has set forth the Lord Jesus and that through propitiation, through faith in his blood, to declare God's righteousness for the remission of sins that are past. Well, in Romans chapter 8, this is the God, the judge of all, all the faithful. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. And you know the lovely verses that are contained in this chapter. Go to verse 29. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. The Lord Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and we can be with him as the firstborns, plural, because there are going to be others who will be saved at the end of the thousand years, and we are counted amongst the firstborns with the Lord Jesus. Verse 30, moreover whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. It says God is the judge of all, but the judge pronounces us righteous, just. He's the justifier because of our faith. Faith is counted for righteousness, for justification. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Hold on to these things, my dear brothers and spirit. My dear brothers and sisters, let us not do despite to the spirit of grace that we talked about in the first talk. Back to Hebrews 12 and number six. And to the spirits of just men made perfect. Here it is now, the work of the Lord Jesus and our faith in him being accounted righteous, we can be called just, righteous in God's sight through faith. Just men who will be made perfect. Something that the law could never do. The law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. And the spirits of just men. Well, spirits is here the idea of the disposition, the thought processes to be spiritually minded is life and peace rather than to be carnally or fleshly minded, which is death by absorbing the spirit word by its reading day by day. We come from being carnally, fleshly minded to being spiritually minded. The spirits, the disposition of those men and women who have been counted righteous will be made perfect in that great day. The work that God started, 
he will perfect, he will perform in the day of the coming of the Lord Jesus. Number seven, verse 24, uh, and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. This is number seven next to the last one. And it reminds us, go back to Hebrews 8 and verse 13. Hebrews 8 and verse 13. The Lord Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And chapter 8 and verse 13 says, In that he saith a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Jerusalem is going to be shaken and destroyed. The temple, not one stone will be left another, upon another. And here now, the new covenant, the fresh covenant, the one that is young and vital. The word young is used of young men and women as opposed to the old and the failing. It speaks of vitality and strength in contrast to those who are elderly and feeble. And the Lord Jesus is the mediator between God and men. And it is through his blood, the blood of the new covenant, the blood, the wine that we share every Sunday together, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. These are the better promises, aren't they, upon which the work of the Lord Jesus is based. The law was not an end in itself. It pointed forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sin of the world. And the Lord Jesus is the mediator of this new and better covenant. Last one, number eight. And uh, sorry, number eight and verse uh, 24. And to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Cain murdered his brother, didn't he, back in Genesis 4. And it's recorded that the voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. It shrieks is the idea there. It's shouting loudly. It's calling for help. It's calling out because of injustice. Abel's blood cried out of the earth for vengeance. But Christ's blood speaks from heaven of salvation and of forgiveness. Christ speaks from heaven today and it's the still small voice as opposed to the earthquake, the wind and the fire that was Sinai. The still small voice that says, come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. So no wonder the writer has said, let us not do despite to the spirit of grace. Or verse 15 of chapter 12, just turn back to it. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God. Now is not the time to be turning back, but to hang on and endure to the end, because he that will come, he that is promised will come and will not tarry. So why does Hebrews 12 end by, as it were, echoing 
Sinai, and then with that awesome phrase, our God is a consuming fire. Let's just, in the last couple of minutes, consider the last few verses. Verse 25, see that you refuse not him that speaketh. Israel refused at Sinai. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, much more shall not we escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, the Lord Jesus, whose voice then shook the earth, the almighty God at Sinai. And now he hath promised, saying, yet once more I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word, yet once more, signifying the remover, removing of those things which are shaken as of things that are made that those things which are which cannot be shaken may remain well see in your margin it's a quotation from hebrews sorry from haggai chapter two just hold on for one minute come back to haggai chapter two please and where the writer to the hebrews is quoting from haggai chapter two and it's the time of the rebuilding of the temple, Zerubbabel and Joshua. And there's very much mixed feelings between the old and the young. Those older ones who'd seen Solomon's temple thought, this is disappointing, isn't it? What's this house in comparison to the former house? But the Almighty is wanting to encourage them through Haggai. When the question is asked, verse 3 of chapter 2, who is left among you that saw this house in her first glory? And how do you see it now? Is it not in your eyes in comparison as it, of it as nothing? Verse 4, yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, saith the Lord, and be strong, O Joshua, son of Josedek, the high priest, and be strong, O ye people of the land, saith the Lord, and work, for I am with you, saith the Lord of hosts. Here's another echo of Hebrews. I am with you. That's tomorrow's chapter. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. The Lord is our helper. We do not need to fear what man will do unto us. So the end of verse four, I am with you, was the message to the exiles, to the Hebrews and to us. Verse 6, and here's the quotation. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth, and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and the desire of all nations shall come, or the desirable things of all nations shall come, and I will fill this house with glory, saith the Lord of hosts. The writer to the Hebrews is applying those words to AD 70. The heavens and the earth of, of, of Jewish life were going to be completely swept away. But that isn't the ultimate fulfillment. It can't be, can it? Because do you notice in verse 6 when he says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. That's where Paul stops. That's where the writer stops. That's the first time I've mentioned Paul, beg your pardon. And the, the, the prophet says, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations. And that was not 
fulfilled in AD 70. It was Jerusalem and the Jewish Commonwealth that was shaken. But the days are coming when the Lord Jesus will return with power and great glory and things are going to be shaken big time, aren't they? But the chapter ends with a salutary lesson. Our God is a consuming fire. He was a consuming fire at Sinai and he's a consuming fire today. Last quotation, Isaiah chapter 33. My last quotation, Isaiah 33. Remember that fire is the agent of Almighty God and it has a twofold purpose. It can consume and it can refine. In the case of the prophet Isaiah, the fire, the coals from the censer, from the altar, refined his lips. I'm a man of unclean lips and his lips were cleansed by the fire of the coals from, the off, from off the altar. And Isaiah then, here am I, send me. It was a cleansing fire. But come to Isaiah 33, and we read of the type of people who don't tremble at God's word. God said, I will, to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit. And the fire then that comes, to the people in Zion in Isaiah 33 and verse 14 is indeed fearful. The sinners, uh, Isaiah 33, 14, the sinners in Zion are afraid. Fearfulness hath surprised the hypocrites. Who among us shall dwell with the devouring fire? Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And then we get the answer. He that walketh righteously and speaketh uprightly. Stop there. That's enough, isn't it, to be going on with. This is the grace of Almighty God. He that walketh righteously. We're doing our best. We're trying to run the race with endurance. But we need the grace of God to count our faith as righteousness. And to these people, look what will happen. Verse 17, thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. We've been encouraged to look unto Jesus and the days are coming when we will see him for ourselves. We will look at the king and see him in all his magnificent beauty. So my dear brothers and sisters, let's bring it all together. We're encouraged to run the race of faith and to endure faithfully unto the end. The Hebrews were weary. Let's not us get weary, but let us recharge our batteries with these eight powerful promises to remain steadfast and endure faithfully unto the end, resting in the grace and mercy of Almighty God looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of faith. The days are quickly flying and Christ will come again with all his saints attending, triumphant in his train, when every eye shall see him and every tongue confess the glory of the Father in Christ, our righteousness.
O day of exaltation, O day of God's elect, sweet day of consummation that longing hearts expect. When every conflict ended and every sorrow passed, the cry goes out triumphant, the Lord has come at last. Lord, come then in thy kingdom, set up on earth thy throne, and lest thy sheep grow weary, come take them for thine own. Now when the night seems darkest, come in thy glory bright, come to redeem thine Israel, and turn our faith to sight.